A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, this is a place where we gather to engage in wrong think, which, while it sounds really subversive, is really just normal people claiming their freedoms, living their lives as best they can, pushing back against the narratives that are being force-fed to us on a daily basis. You know, one of the, one of the most helpful uh, people that I've found in this quest to stay tethered to reality is my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, uh, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. And I'm uh, sitting here in my living room uh, being very grateful for uh, the couple of gallons of gasoline that I had in the jug in the garage (laughs) because the power went out last night. And if I hadn't had that and if I had to rely on uh, Biden's green energy right now, we wouldn't be talking because the phone would be dead and I'd be freezing because there'd be no heat in the house. Well, congratulations for being prepared. Yes, indeed. And I plan to continue to be prepared, too and particularly prepared to fight back against this madness that's sweeping the country even still. You know, I, I saw something on Twitter today. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to send a copy of this to you. Um, OK, it's it's a, a 1918 document. This is dated September mm-hmm. 26th, and, and it's uh, from Washington, D.C. This is from the federal government regarding influenza. And the, the crazy thing about this 1918 document on the Spanish flu you combine, you compare that to the the fear mongering claptrap we've had shoved down our throats for the last yep. two years. You look at this document and you'll notice the the explanations are very clear and rational. People are expected to assume responsibility for their well being. No threats, mm-hmm. no mandates, no political opportunism. The government is just simply advising people based on the best information available at that time. Now compare that and ask yourself, what the hell is going on today? You know, well, that's compared to that. back in those days. It was about health, and this is about politics slash control, which I think by now ought to be blatantly evident to anybody who's giving a fair glance uh, at what's going on now. I don't even know where we, we can start on this, but let's start with the fact that they're not even trying to claim any longer that the vaccines actually immunize people. So, you know, consider that. So they're pushing a vaccine on people that does not prevent the sickness that they're all up in arms about. What is that? What purpose does that serve? A vac, uh, you know, a symptom palliator uh, that makes you feel a little better if you get sick. That's the best that it does for a limited period of time, uh, and they want to keep doing this in perpetuity. Jabs forever for everyone. It's madness, and it's it's not benign madness either because these these air quote vaccines uh, also come with serious risks, as we've talked about many times in the past. So you're being told that you must be jabbed with a substance that doesn't immunize you which doesn't stop the spread, but which could possibly cause serious health problems to yourself, your family, your children, you name it. Now, what reasonable person could say, hmm, that seems like a good idea? No, I'm, I'm with you there. And yet you, you look around and like you just pointed out, uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio is saying, okay, and we're also going to mandate that every private employer has to, uh, to make sure their employees are vaccinated. They're mandating vaccines for kids ages 5 to 11. It's like, it's like yeah. the, the ruling class can't admit that it was wrong in how it uh, responded to this pandemic in the first place. 
there's that aspect to it, and also perhaps they're just evil. I don't know which it is, or perhaps it's both things together. I wrote an article the other day about uh, a guy I had a conversation with who is in favor of, or in favor, he thinks everybody should be compelled uh, to, to take the jab. And I said to him, well, perhaps you should be compelled to take AIDS meds. You know, you should have to take AZT. And he drew himself back and said, but, but, but I'm not gay. I don't have AIDS. And I said, well, I'm not sick, and I'm not at risk of this sickness either. You know, and you make a point to that like that to people, and uh, most of them will, will just stomp their feet and walk away. They're impenetrable. You can't reason with these people anymore. No, it's... It's an interesting time, and I and I really I admit maybe I was just naive, but Eric, I had this sensation that maybe things were starting to settle down, and and that uh, Leviathan that's so intent on bending us to its will appeared to be backing off. But mm-hmm. here it comes back, full you know, charging full on, and and look at the nations that are, you know, putting people under house arrest simply because they won't get an injection. Law-abiding people subject to house arrest. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's it's in this country, it's kind of desperate flailing at this point. Um, we seem to have gotten traction our side of things. Uh, the courts have been ruling in our favor. A lot of big corporations have backed down uh, on their prior insistence that everybody would be jabbed. But as you note, in Europe and in Australia, uh, it has reached a degree of scary insanity that uh, most of us would never have thought possible before. As you say, we're uh, not only must you get jabbed, if you don't, uh, they are threatening to haul you off to prison, literally, and put you in a, in a cell if you don't do this and hit you with um, ruinous, crippling fines on a personal level. I think in Australia it's $5,000 per uh, offense for noncompliance. I think it's even higher uh, in Austria. And, of course, this is unsustainable. You know, This is the kind of thing that nobody can, uh, can survive in an environment like that. And they're, they're, they're turning an entire class of the population into a ghettoized, uh, uh, set-aside uh, pariah class that can, be, that can be abused officially, legally, under color of law. Mm, and curiously enough, it's the same countries that did that 70 years ago, you know? And I don't know whether it's something in their culture that makes it easier for them to slip into that, or it might also be that in most of these countries, I think all of them, the populace is disarmed, and the government knows that. And so they feel emboldened that they can do this without the kind of pushback that I think that they would face here if they attempted to do something similar. I'm looking at uh, a, a response to, to the situation that we're in. And this is, uh, this is a website uh, called Jabless, dot, or Jabless Jobs. I, I found this on Facebook, but this, mm-hmm. is, uh, this is an employment agency that helps people who are resisting the jab to find gainful employment. And I believe this is this one is located in Canada, but this is the kind of thing I would love to see take hold and spread worldwide. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we should vote with our dollars as well as our skills. Um, if we can do something, find somebody that is willing to pay us to do it without uh, insisting that we be jabbed. And there's lots of us out there who are of the same mind and who are more than prepared to do business with and uh, to be helpful to people of like mind. And I think you and I have talked about in the past this whole idea of decentralizing and decoupling, of getting away from these centralized structures that can impose tyranny because as an individual, you and I really can't do much against uh, some gigantic corporate cartel you know, that, that has tens of thousands of employees and we're just one employee and they can bring to bear all of this money and all of this political influence. But when you're dealing one-on-one or you're dealing with people in your town that you know it's an entirely different kind of a dynamic. 
And if we just sort of separate ourselves peacefully, and that's the beauty of it, we say, you know what, we don't want to play with you guys anymore. We're going to go play with ourselves, so to speak. And uh, you know that ends up working to our benefit in a way that, short of them literally sending out the military and hut hut hutting every community in this country, which I don't think they're going to do, it's something that I don't think they have the capability to to respond to and to prevent. You know, I'm trying to remember, I think you and I, over the years, we've talked about a lot of different aspects of how to stand up for freedom, but I, I just can't help but wonder if we're reaching the point where those of us who are still determined to be free are going to have to come up with some kind of a, you know, a secret handshake or something to identify <laughs> ourselves to the fellow members of the pro-freedom conspiracy. Well, yeah, we kind of had that at the height of the masking madness. If you saw somebody who wasn't masked, that was a pretty good sign that uh, it was a fellow wrong thinker. Now, of course, it's harder to gauge because you never know if the person just got their jab, um, uh, whether they are or aren't. But that's the kind of thing that we can do going forward. And I don't think we have to necessarily be furtive about it. We just say, look, you know, uh, just as we choose our friends, we choose our spouses, we choose the people we want to do business with, let's just make that a more conscious principle and simply not have anything to do with people who would tyrannize us. Uh, Don't vote for people who would tyrannize you don't do business with, you know, banks, for example, my girlfriend and I've been talking about this, you know, doing business with these gigantic banks that are part of this system. Uh, Why not instead take our money and put it in the local bank where we maybe know the person who runs the bank and know the people who work there. And because we know them, it's harder to be uh, a cruel and impersonal person uh, when you're dealing with people on that individual level. You know, the corporation on their hand can issue a fatwa from the corporate headquarters in another state and that goes down the line to the middle managers, the lower-level managers. And those people, you know, they're, as they say, just doing their job. They don't have a lot of latitude, a lot of, um, of flexibility to interpret what the giant corporation says. But when you're dealing with the guy who actually runs the store, and maybe he's your neighbor or at least he's somebody in your town and you know who he is, much less likely that that guy is going to behave in an obnoxious manner toward the person that he knows down the road. Well, and I I agree with you completely. I think we need to build those relationships and build those networks of like-minded people. And, of course, it doesn't hurt for us to to use uh, some personal preparedness in the process as well. We're, we're up against the break here, but Eric, when we come mm-hmm. back, let's talk about some of the steps we can take to, to better solidify our own self-reliance. And I also want to talk about an article uh, you recently published about something creepy that you noticed in, yeah, in a sure. car that you okay. were, were test driving. Mm-hmm. All right. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. There's a link to his website in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Go click on it. Oh, you'll spend some time there. You'll learn a lot, not just from Eric, but also from the commenters on his articles. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And, Eric, we were talking as we went to the break a little bit about uh, self-reliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had mentioned you guys had a little power outage as, yes. as uh, the day was starting. Still do. Oh, still, you might be still able to hear my generator. In, you might be able to hear my generator in the background. We had a, a windstorm last night, and I guess a tree came down or something like that. Knocked the power out, and it made me grateful for having uh, the flexibility of gasoline that I have under my control to power my generator which gives me electricity when the sun isn't shining like last night um, uh, or other unreliable uh, forms of energy aren't available. 
And we take so much of this for granted, you know, hot and cold running water, the ability to jump in your car and just go to work and get the things that you want, and, and to have a supermarket where the shelves aren't bare. And I think it's really important that we step back and reflect and think, you know, these are not givens. These are not things that just rain from the sky uh, and, and don't have, uh, you know, don't, don't that have to be provided somehow by somebody. And if we're not careful, these things could go away, or rather, I think more accurately, they could be taken away. There are people out there who are trying to take these things away from us, and I think we need to stop that. I don't want to sound like I'm conspiratorial, but I'm sure this will to some people. But it looks to me like the the current administration is taking deadly aim, particularly at the energy sector, and doing everything in their mm-hmm. power to decrease our energy independence, to raise the cost, to make it very prohibitively expensive for people to use fossil fuels. You know, and if it wrecks the economy, well, that's too bad. But you know, we got to do this to save the planet. Sure, and, and let's be precise. Uh, we're, we're talking about them wrecking our economy. You know, this isn't them bringing everything down around them and themselves too. What they want to do is impoverish us. You know, they have the the political power to uh, dip into our pockets at will, to take and extract as much of our wealth as they like. They're not the ones who are going to be driving around uh, in, in tiny little electric cars that have a 100-mile range. You'll note that, that uh, Sleepy Joe is still driving around, or being driven around, I should say, in his 6,000-pound armored V8-powered Chevy Tahoe SUV or, or the Beast, the gigantic Cadillac limo. Uh, not very green, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be because they've got this limitless, exhaust, inexhaustible supply of our money. So I think people should consider that. You know, this is about the, the political elites, not an elite of meritocracy, the political elites who have political power, using their political power to ensurf us, to erect a kind of modern feudal system in which most people are, are in dire straits uh, economically and in terms of the bare necessities of life, food and shelter. And because of that, uh, they're, they're cringing before the elites, which is what they want. They want power. That's what this is all about. It's not benevolent even though it's couched in benevolent language. But again, notice that the sacrificing is being done by us, not by them. Very true. And again, it's it's not so much, I don't want to just go out there. I'm not calling for pitchforks and torches. Let's go, you know, throw these bombs yeah. out in the street. I'm just saying they need to leave us alone, and we will we will figure things out for ourselves. And, and if that sounds antisocial, I'm sorry, but I don't want to, I don't want to go down with the ship. Well, we, I think we should get angry, minimally. There's something insufferable. There's something outrageous about a guy uh, who lives in a mansion uh, where the thermostat is kicked up to 75 and who feasts on dinners prepared for him by world-class chefs uh, and doesn't have a, a worry in the world about anything materially, not because he earned a lot of money, but because he can take a lot of our money, um, telling us that we've got to tighten our belts. We've got to drive electric cars that we can't afford. We've got to live in urban hive, 600-square-foot apartments for the sake of the earth. There's something incredibly, insufferably obnoxious about that, and it makes me mad, and I think it should make us all mad. Hear, hear. Let's, let's talk for a moment about uh, an article that you published, I believe, just today about, mm-hmm. oh, no, it was a couple days ago, Something Creepy This Way Comes. Yeah. You were driving, a, was it a nice Mercedes, and your, yeah, your camera was... picked up something. Yeah, I was monologuing about something else in one of the new cars I drive. It happened to be a, a, a brand-new Mercedes S-Class, and there's a review of that car up on the site for anybody who's interested. But it, it was curious because as I was 
monologuing with my little video rig, the camera of the video rig picked up something that my eyes couldn't see in the dashboard of the car. Now, this being a high-end luxury car, it has one of those completely digital dashboards, you know, and it's no longer an analog gauge cluster. Anyway, I noticed these back-and-forth blinking, blinking little lights in the, in, the, uh, in, in the main gauge cluster, and you can see it in the video that accompanies the article. And essentially what that is is some kind of a sensing technology that watches you as you, as you drive. And people should know that this technology is being embedded in their cars, and ostensibly it's being sold as another safety device. I always like to say it in that snarky way, <laughs> uh, you know, that, oh, it's going to make sure that you're not falling asleep behind the wheel, and then it will alert you, or oh, better pay attention. Well, what's happening, what's congealing, part of uh, Biden's infrastructure plan, as he put it, uh, there's a, a line item in there about installing uh, a kill switch in a car, in cars beginning five years from now. The kill switch will be if the car decides that you're not safe to drive. Now, of course, they're going to say, it's, oh, it's just we're just looking out for <clears throat> distracted and reckless people, drunk people. Well, the car will shut itself off, literally, or pull over to the side of the road and turn off. And the point that I'm making in this is who gets to define what constitutes distracted driving? Well, it's going to be whoever programs the car. And maybe they're going to decide that, well, you're accelerating too rapidly. You just changed lanes too abruptly. You didn't follow whatever the traffic law is, whatever arbitrary traffic law it is. And the car picks that up, and it shuts itself off. That's where this is headed. And this is a real thing. This isn't a hypothesis. This is in the infrastructure bill. And we're this close to seeing it passed. And, and if it does pass five years from now, by the 2026 model year, your car will be whoever, whoever controls the programming of your car which will be the corporations who are doing the bidding of the government in bed together in an incestuous bid to wrest any control over your driving from you. Yikes. I mean, look, I, I don't go out and just cruise around like I used to just because gas prices are becoming prohibitively yep. expensive, but my car is one of the last places where I still kind of feel free to go chart my own course. I don't want to give right. that up. Right. Well, they want you to give it up, and... They're using this sort of thing to make you want to give it up. They're making driving as expensive and as unpleasant as possible. Um, if you, you, know, you follow my stuff, and so you'll see that I frequently rant about these safety systems that they're putting in cars, which assault you with beeps and buzzers and lights flashing, and lately actually physically attempt to correct your driving. You know, The steering wheel will actually jerk in a different direction if the car thinks that you're not traveling in the right lane, let's say, or you haven't signaled or will hit the brakes if it thinks that you need to brake. It makes driving really unpleasant, and that's exactly on purpose. What they want is for you to say, you know what, this sucks. I'm going to give up on this. Bring on the autonomous car, and I'll just sit there in the car, and I'll play on my cell phone uh, and gape out the window as the car takes me to where I want to go. I shared one of your uh, columns from last week with with my audience uh, just yesterday mm -hmm. about choices made for us. Yep. And, and it was a brilliant explanation of how you can't even buy the car that you may want to buy, not because uh, not because legislators, you know, have listened to the people and responded, but just because regulatory agencies have imposed, you know, limitations on what can be made. And, and that's what the car companies are doing. Yeah, it's very ironic because we'll hear the people on the control freak authoritarian left constantly talk about democracy. You know, we are supposedly in a, a country where the people get to decide things. Well, that's that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, the, people are denied the choice 
uh, particularly in this case when it comes to cars, and not by law, not by process. It's not as though we had a plebiscite and the public voted and decided, you know what, uh, all new cars should have airbags, and not just airbags, they should have six airbags, and all new cars should have backup cameras, and all new cars should have lane keep assist and automated emergency braking and event data recorders uh, and little, uh, little hidden lights and little sensors inside the dashboard that track your eye movements and shut the car off if, you, if the car thinks you're, you're distracted. No, what's happened is this federal regulatory apparatus that nobody voted for, did you vote for NHTSA or DOT? I didn't. Nope. Somehow these agencies just were, were cast into existence by Congress, which, which kind of cast off its role to write laws and be held accountable for the laws that it writes to these bureaucracies that are permanent. You can't vote out a bureaucrat, can you? He's there for life. Look at Fauci. And no, they point. just issue these regulations, and, and that's what determines what we get to have, and that means we get to have less and less. Eric, I'm afraid we got to stop here. Thank sure. you so much for being my guest, though. I'll uh, send my listeners to your website via the link in today's show notes. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to the uh, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This was a business started back in 1984. It's only changed hands twice. It is still a family-owned, family-run business. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. And if you have anything to do with uh, sewing, with embroidery, with quilting, this is a place you should know about. I have this hunch, and, and you know, I'm not trying to pro- proclaim doom here. Well, you know, things are going to be so bad. People will be making their own clothes. But if you're watching prices go up, and I know we all are, we're looking at, you know, the cost of every consumer item going up because of gas prices and inflation. And let's just say economically, I think it would make a lot of sense to have the capability of either making or fixing your own clothes. Plus, it's just a fun hobby. And and some truly creative people have just excelled at this. So if you'd like to find out more, please go to uh, either go to their store, 779 South Bluff Street, or you can uh, just click on the link in my show notes at the com. That's Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, let's talk about the reimposition of masks. Let's talk about the lockdowns. Let's talk about putting people in containment or quarantine facilities. I don't know about you, but I actually had a sense that, uh, you know, it felt like things were starting to slide back towards some sense of normality. And I think we would be there, not to, you know, totally back to the way things were, but I think we would mostly be, you know, back to living our lives and not worrying about, oh boy, another mandate, another, you know, another demand, you know, that you have to do this. But the people in power just cannot admit that they were wrong in how they responded to the pandemic. All the lockdowns, all the mandates, all the all the things they did to control people and to make the through behavior we're going to make this virus do what we want it to do. It didn't work. Probably the best example of this is you look at very very highly vaccinated countries like Iceland, like Israel. Just to name a couple are having 
comparable breakthrough infections even among the vaccinated. So, you know, the, the ones that are locking it down hard, Germany, for crying out loud. They flattened the curve all right, <clears throat> but they did it along the wrong axis. And yet the, there's just, there's no capacity on the part of those who are in authority to say, oh, we were wrong. And I get it. You know, I mean, I, I understand. There's the liability standpoint. If we say that we were wrong, why, there's going to be class action lawsuits and people are going to sue us into the Stone Age. And while I can understand that uh, that measure of self-preservation that says, <clears throat> I don't want to be sued into the Stone Age, I also think maybe you guys deserve it. It's not like there weren't voices that were saying, you know, don't do this. Let's look at, uh, at how we have handled viruses over the last hundred years, and let's not abandon what has worked. But that's exactly what they did. And the crazy thing about it right now is the, the systems and the people who, who want so badly to rule us, they just can't admit they were wrong. They're struggling to cover up the reality of how wrong they were. Got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel. And this, it's titled, The War on a Virus Has Resulted in Colossal Failure. And the ruling class is determined to cover up this undeniable reality. He says, the war on a virus is long lost. And the sunk costs keep piling up. Now, whether you believe this was all to bring about a great reset or some of the actors involved genuinely wanted to stop a virus, the result is now clear. He says, the war on COVID-19 is over. And it has resulted in colossal loss. Not a single battle was won. They lost the war. They know they lost the war. And now the losing side of the war, this global elite, is attempting to cover up this reality by any means necessary, even if it means dragging the entirety of humanity down with them. And he links to a, to a, a YouTube video of Australia's COVID internment camp, Howard Springs. Hey, it's a pretty nice-looking camp. Those are pretty, uh, I mean, this doesn't look like, you know, the barracks and the the, the various, uh, you know, ugly, you know, utilitarian buildings you would see in a concentration camp. But it is a concentration camp. It's concentrating people who uh, are either at risk or unvaccinated because the government says they need to be concentrated in here and not uh, free to roam throughout the public. I don't know. We've heard of this before, but... Nobody wants to believe that what was put down 80 years ago is somehow trying to make a resurgence. Well, history may not uh, repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. And there are a couple great videos in Jordan Schachtel's article that will help uh, point this out, as well as a great link to an article from Zero Hedge, disturbing, disturbing confrontation inside Australia's gold standard COVID internment camp. Now, I know that's, this sounds like the stuff of fantasy, right? Doesn't this sound like Alex Jones should be the one shouting about this? <laughs> but it's real. And the crazy thing about it is, is Australia being a first world country, why don't you hear any of the world leaders from any other first world countries looking at this and going, hey, 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 that's a little bit too much. That's taking it too far. Why won't they say, that is absolutely off the table. I mean, I'm just, I'm making a, a guess here, but uh, my supposition is 
because they're probably looking to see if it will work and if it's something they might implement themselves. I mean, for crying out loud, you now have movement passes for five-year-olds in New York City and San Francisco, prison for the non-compliant in Austria and Germany, detention centers for troubling, troublesome citizens in Australia and New Zealand. Jordan Schachtel asks, what do all of these places have in common? Well, first and foremost, as his readers now well know, none of these measures was backed by any legitimate scientific precedent. The global elite forcibly drafted billions of people into fighting a war on a virus, and that war has been an abysmal failure. And now almost two years into this war, the ruling class won't give it up. Far from surrendering this unwinnable war, the generals of this struggle have decided to bring us down with them into colossal defeat. And here he links to a tweet about uh, New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, announcing new COVID-19 protections for New York City. Oh, great, he's protecting them. Let's see, what is he going to do? Oh, a vaccine mandate for private sector employees. Vaccine proof for indoor dining, fitness, and entertainment required for children ages 5 to 11. And then there's another tweet about Austria, where the unvaccinated will be formally asked to get vaccinated starting February 15th. Those who fail to comply one month later will face penalties, according to a draft law in Austria. Penalties for noncompliance, 600 euro every three months. Maximum penalty, 3,600 euros. Failure to pay results in prison sentences. Yeah, don't, don't ever try to convince me that the state is, it's a reasonable, you know, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's, an, it's an organization that's helping us get things done without resorting to the brutish nastiness of, you know, cavemen clubbing each other over the head. Bullcrap. Sorry, but uh, that's not true. The state has organized violence. And when Austria talks about uh, we will formally ask people to get vaccinated, what that means is, you know, dressed up in nicer language, we will threaten people, and if they don't, we will start hitting them in the pocketbook, and if they refuse to pay us, then we'll throw them in prison. That's violence. I'm sorry, there's no other way to put it. That is violence against people who have committed no crime. I don't know how, I don't know how much more clear we could make this. Jordan Schachtel says the people, organizations, and governments in charge of fighting our war on a virus have lost in a devastating fashion. Far from a successful global effort to stop a virus, he says these ruling factions and power centers have failed the billions of people drafted into this war without the consent of the governed. From Los Angeles to Sydney to Moscow to Rio to New York to Paris to London and everywhere in between, almost every government on every level of the world, with very few exceptions, committed incredible harm against their populations in the name of stopping a virus. And they have absolutely nothing to show for it. They threw every public health expert class instrument in the book at the COVID-19 pandemic. And nothing worked. But the people in charge don't want to be blamed for the chaos they wrought. That's bad politics. It's not an ideal situation for those who believe that they are the personification of science itself. So instead of admitting to gross, criminally negligent, and now purposeful failure... These maniacal saboteurs are doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on sunk costs for the masses, says Jordan Schachtel. He says the elites know nothing is working, but they'd rather take everyone down with them than admit to wholesale failure. 
We're going to come back to his article in a few moments. It is linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Look, my goal here is not to make you feel sad or angry or anything like that. But this is a reality that has to be faced. And the sooner we face it, the better. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing with you an article from Jordan Schachtel. This is from dossier.substack.com. The war on a virus has resulted in a colossal failure, and the ruling class is determined to cover up this undeniable reality, says Jordan Schachtel. Now, I realize that's a pretty forceful position to take, and not everybody's going to agree, and so I'm not going to insist that you agree. But I am going to ask you, take a look at some of the evidence that he presents here, and just see if he doesn't make a pretty strong case here that the people, the organizations, the governments in charge of fighting this war on a virus have in fact lost and have nothing to show for the exceptional harm that they have committed against their populations. And it's it's looking more and more like they would rather take everybody down with them than admit to having failed. I guess I, I just watched the movie um, 10,000 B.C. last week. My family and I sat down and watched it. It's a great flick if you haven't seen it. It's very worthwhile. And part of, part of the, uh, the uh, um, antagonists, the, the, the Egyptians, I suppose they were, uh, were, were portrayed as, you know, the Pharaoh was like God. And, and there was this godlike quality and everybody had to bow and nobody could challenge and you didn't even dare look at these leaders and they were you know shrouded in mystery and whatnot and everybody believed it and thousands and thousands of slaves behaved right up until the moment that one of them threw a spear right through the belly of this demigod who was ruling over them and at that point it became very clear They're just people, subject to human nature, just like us, fallible, just like us. But it's that air of infallibility that uh, the ruling class really likes to, uh, to milk in order to keep us in awe of them, in order to keep us in thrall to them and, and obedient. Look, Jordan Schachtel points out the masks failed. The lockdowns failed. Every single overhaul of society to accommodate the safety regime failed. And he says now it's becoming pretty clear the big pharma mRNA injection regime failed too. The people did not fail the ruling class. Whether we like it or not, the people complied in mass. According to so many metrics, compliance with these pseudoscientific measures was off the charts. Almost everyone wore the masks. Almost everyone stayed in their homes to stop the spread. An estimated 8-plus billion COVID shot doses have been administered. Citizens across the world placed overwhelming virtual blind trust in these governments to protect them from a virus. And it didn't work. And Jordan Schachtel says, look, humanity's left with this tremendous sunk cost, with the ruling class having drafted billions into this mess, 
resulting in hundreds of millions of lost lives and livelihoods. Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, uh, Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, the New York Times, the Chinese Communist Party, Pfizer, Moderna, Facebook, Google, Twitter, the CDC, the FDA, the list goes on. These people, governments and organizations should be defined by this era and the suicidal war on a virus that they forced upon the world. And he says, everyone should always remember the incredible human suffering spawned by these actors. Now, I know I, t- I, I tell you, I try to take great care not to, to fan the flames of anger, not to, to plant anger in people's hearts. So if you find yourself unconsciously reaching for the pitchfork and the torches, don't. That's not the point here. The idea here is, let's acknowledge this for what it is. It's unpleasant. I get it. it and it, it makes me uncomfortable. And I, I feel like I've had a, a fairly good inkling of, of where this was going from the beginning. Or at least I've been sounding that voice of caution along with a lot of other people. Let's not leap here before we really are sure what we're jumping into. But I don't know that we're going to see this this moment come when suddenly there's going to be this huge shock and people will wake up and go, Oh, wow, hey, this was wrong. And it's not just the elite that are, that are clinging to that hope that, uh, well, you know, hopefully everything is, is you know, still, um, hopefully there's something here that we can still stand on. It's common people, too. I've really become a fan of uh, the musician Zuby, Z-U-B-Y. I don't know if, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just a fanboy, but the, the guy's tweets are just so concise and so thoughtful And something he observed a couple of days ago is he says, you know, I really believe that most people would rather be wrong with the crowd than to admit they were wrong and have to to take a different direction. They they can see they're wrong, but to admit it, I don't know. That's, That's hard. That takes humility. It's hard for me to admit when I'm wrong, but I am sometimes. And this is one of the reasons why I take great care not to impose or not to try to impose on everybody my one-size-fits-all way things ought to be. I really believe people should be free to choose and act as long as their behavior is peaceful. I think pretty much anything goes. Now remember, that's as long as their behavior is peaceful. Anything peaceful ought to be on the table. I'm not a big fan of imposing on others. But we've seen for the last couple of years now what happens when we take that top-down approach. Everybody has to approach it like this. And the problem, too, is that we have a lot of people who are living in real, legit fear. You can see this in the, in the folks who are, are driving around, you know, alone, masked up. I know it sounds like, Brian, are you making fun of these people after you just said, don't, don't be poking fun at others? I'm not making fun of them. In fact, I, I hope that, I hope you can pick up on, I really, I feel sympathy for them because I'm pretty sure, you know, my armchair psychologist uh, position here, I'm pretty sure that what, what is motivating them to, to wear a mask when they're out walking on a hiking trail by themselves or when they're, you know, driving in their car alone is simply fear. 
you got a few Karens out there that are virtue signaling to the world. And for some people, you know, the mask is the uniform of the compliant. And this shows why I'm morally better than you. But that's not most people. I think most people are doing it because they legitimately are concerned. And some people really are in a more risky category. I still question whether masks are really that protective, but if especially an older person or someone who has, you know, some of the attendant risks and comorbidities like diabetes or heart disease or something like that, weight issues, I'm not going to fault them for, for masking up and trying to protect themselves. And maybe this will surprise you. I, I think there may actually be some benefit to masks, not necessarily against COVID, but I know my wife, who is a public school teacher, has said, you know, the crazy thing is when we were required to wear masks, one thing we noticed was there were a lot fewer people who were out with colds or with the flu. Now, maybe that was combined with something else. Maybe that was combined with, you know, distancing or, or whatever. But the bottom line is it hasn't slowed down the COVID virus. It hasn't stopped it. And it's not going to. And that's why I don't understand. You know, people who have been fully vaccinated, a whole cruise ship full of people, fully vaccinated. Well, they just pulled back into New Orleans yesterday with a COVID outbreak on the cruise ship of fully vaccinated people. I mean, come on. The vaccine itself isn't preventing people from getting the, the illness or spreading the illness. So why would we pretend that vaccine passports, these electronic documents that tell whether you're compliant or not, is going to do anything to control the virus? They're not. At least it seems obvious to me that this has got to be about something more than, uh, well, you know, it's, it's stopping the virus a little bit. No, it's not. What it's doing is it's providing a mechanism of control for people who must not ever be wrong. That doesn't strike you as just a little bit dangerous? As I mentioned yesterday on the show, um, we've, we've reached the point where law-abiding adults are being held under house arrest for refusing to get an injection that they do not want to get. You ever seen anything like that in your lifetime? I sure haven't. It doesn't seem to bode well for where we are headed at this point. So, let's be courageous. Let's be more certain of who we are and what we stand for, but let's not try to pretend or try to minimize and say, well, you know, it's really not that bad. It is that bad in the sense that uh, someone is very clearly trying to take away your freedoms and then trying to cover up the damage done by taking away your freedoms by taking away more of them. Where do you suppose something like that ends? I don't know the answer, but I can't imagine it ending in a good place. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where people who are either awake or in the process of waking up can safely gather 
to learn about the world around them, to challenge the beliefs of the status quo, to challenge the narratives that we're supposed to believe, and to hopefully see the world as it is and come away at the end of the day more certain of who we are and what we stand for than simply what we're against. I tell you this through long experience, but uh, you can't be mad enough to change the world. Just simple anger and, you know, condemnation and thundering against them and that, it's not enough. What changes the world are individuals who are absolutely rock-solid certain of where they stand. Not so they can impose it on other people, but so they can live it and, by example, draw others into their orbit. And there really is some gravitational pull in the power of example. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Our program is brought to you by GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, also HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, LifesavingFood.com, and Monticello, MonticelloCollege.org. So, in the other hour of the show, I talked about avoiding reality, particularly how the ruling class is struggling to cover up the reality of the fact that they have lost the war against COVID. They can't admit they're wrong. That might shake our faith in them. We might say, well, you know what? These guys were totally wrong. Why would we follow them? That's a threat to their position of power. So it's a little bit dangerous. But there's another example of avoiding reality. And this one, I think we ought to pay pretty close attention to. That's what's happening and what's being done to our economy right now. Got a great article here from Brandon Smith warning that mainstream economists are struggling to hide the incoming economic collapse. Brandon Smith says, For many years now, there's been a contingent of alternative economists working diligently within the liberty movement to combat disinformation being spread by the mainstream media regarding America's true economic condition. Our efforts have been focused primarily on the continued devaluation of the dollar and the forced dependence on globalism that has outsourced and eliminated most U.S. manufacturing and production of raw materials. Now, he says the powers of devaluation and stagflation have been present since 1916 when the Federal Reserve was officially formed and given power. I think it was actually 1913, but let's not quibble. But the true impetus for a currency collapse and the destruction of American buying power began in 2007-2008 when the financial crisis was used as an excuse to allow the Fed to create trillions upon trillions in stimulus dollars for well over a decade. Now, the mainstream media's claim has always been that the Fed saved the U.S. from imminent collapse and that the central bankers are heroes. After all, stock markets have mostly skyrocketed since quantitative easing was introduced during the credit crash, and stock markets are a measure of economic health, right? Well, Brandon Smith says, look, reality isn't a mainstream media story. The U.S. economy isn't the stock market. All the Federal Reserve really accomplished was to forge a devil's bargain trading one manageable deflationary crisis for at least one, possibly more, highly unmanageable inflationary crisis, crises down the road. Central banks kicked the can on the collapse, making it far worse in the process. Now, the U.S. economy in particular is extremely vulnerable right now. Money created from thin air by the Fed was used to support failing banks and corporations, not just here in America, but also banks and companies around the world. And because the dollar has been the world reserve currency for the better part of the last century, 
The Fed has been able to print cash with wild abandon and mostly avoid inflationary consequences. This was especially true in the decade after the derivatives crunch of 2008. Why? Well, the dollar's global reserve status means dollars are likely to be held overseas in foreign banks and corporate coffers to be used in global trade. However, there's no such thing as a party that goes on forever. Eventually, the punch runs out and the lights shut off. If the dollar is devalued too much, whether by endless printing of new money or by relentless inflationary pressures at home, all those overseas dollars will come flooding back into the U.S. The result is an inflationary avalanche, a massive injection of liquidity exactly when it will cause the most trouble. And the warning that Brandon Smith is offering is that we are close to this point of no return. And here he explains the difference between a crisis and a real crisis. Brandon Smith says, As I have said for some time, when inflation becomes visible to the public and their pocketbooks take a hit, this is when the real crisis begins. A catch-22 situation arises, and the Fed must make a choice. Number one, to continue with inflationary programs and risk taking the blame for extreme price increases. Number two, taper these programs and risk an implosion of stock markets, which have long been artificially inflated by stimulus. So here's an unpleasant truth. You might want to sit down for this, but without Fed support, stock markets will die. We had a taste of this the last time the Fed flirted with tapering in 2018. Now, he says, my position has always been that the Federal Reserve is not a banking institution on a mission to protect American financial interests. Rather, he says, I believe the Fed is an ideological suicide bomber waiting to blow itself up and deliberately derail or destroy the American economy at the right moment. And he says, my position has also long been that the bankers would need a cover event to hide their calculated economic attack. Otherwise, they would take full blame for the resulting disaster. The COVID pandemic, subsequent lockdowns and supply chain snarls have now provided that cover event. Two years after the pandemic started and the Fed has pumped out approximately $6 trillion more in stimulus officially and helicopter money through PPP loans and COVID checks. On top of that, Biden's ready to drop another trillion in the span of the next couple of years through his recently passed infrastructure bill. Now, in one of his articles that uh, he wrote recently about infrastructure bills don't lead to recovery, just increased federal control, Brandon Smith noted that production of fiat money is not the same as real production within the economy. Trillions of dollars in public works programs might create more jobs, but it will also inflate prices as the dollar goes into decline. So unless wages are adjusted constantly, according to price increases, people will still have jobs, but they won't be able to afford a comfortable standard of living. This leads to stagflation in which prices continue to rise while wages and consumption stagnate. Another catch-22 to consider is that if inflation becomes rampant, the Federal Reserve may be compelled or claim that they're compelled to raise interest rates significantly in a short span of time. Now, that would mean an immediate slowdown in the flow of overnight loans to major banks, an immediate slowdown in loans to large and small businesses, an immediate crash in credit options for consumers, and an overall crash in consumer spending. You may actually recognize this is the recipe that created the 1981-82 recession, third worst in the 20th century. In other words, the choice is stagflation or deflationary depression. And he says it would appear the Fed has chosen stagflation. 
We've now reached the stage of a game in which stagflation is becoming a household term, and he says it's only going to get worse from here. Now we talk lies, damned lies, and statistics. According to official consumer price index calculations and Fed data, we are now witnessing the largest inflation surge in over 30 years. But the real story is much more concerning. CPI numbers are manipulated and have been since the 1990s when calculation methods were changed and certain unsavory factors were removed. If we look at inflation according to the original way of calculation, it's actually double that reported by the government today. In particular, necessities like food, housing, and energy have exploded in price, but we are only at the beginning. He says, to be clear, Biden's infrastructure bill and the pandemic stimulus are not the only culprits behind the stagflation event. This has been a long time coming. It's the culmination of many years of central bank stimulus sabotage and multiple presidents supporting multiple dollar devaluation schemes. Biden simply appears to be the president to put the final nail in the coffin of the U.S. economy. Or perhaps Kamala Harris. We'll see how long Biden maintains his mental health facade. But how bad will the situation get? Well, Brandon Smith says, I think most alternative economists have the situation uh, called it correctly in predicting a collapse. He says that's not too strong a word for describing what's coming. It's often treated as a loaded term, but he says, I don't know what else you could call the scenario that we're facing. The COVID lockdowns, the battle over vax mandates have perhaps distracted Americans from an even larger danger of financial instability. But he says that fight is important and must continue. But he also says stopping the mandates does not mean the overarching threat of economic chaos goes away and both serve the interest of central bankers and globalists. Got a link to Brandon Smith's article in the show notes. We'll come back to it just the other side of this commercial break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I guess I probably should have started out with a disclaimer at the very beginning of this hour and said, going to be covering some heavy stuff. If you got your mood elevators close by, you might want to grab a handful. <laughs> this is this is tough stuff to, to face, but I think we're grown-ups. I think we can do this, and, and we can figure a way out. But uh, but we can't solve problems if we pretend, hey, that's not even happening, man. Blah, 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 blah. I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. By the way, uh, one of my sponsors is LifesavingFood.com. And regardless of whether uh, there's stormy seas ahead or it's smooth sailing, it's always a good thing to have some provisions put away for a rainy day. LifesavingFood.com can help you with that. Look, whether your needs are big or small, you're getting started on a food storage program or just adding to an existing one. You will find things that will be immensely helpful from 72-hour kit-sized you know, food storage packages to you know, big, let's feed the whole family for a year to come packages. The best thing is you'll get a 25% discount because you are one of my listeners. And uh, that's that's just a nice gimme from lifesavingfood.com. Use my name, my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout. Save a cool 25%. 
You can find a link in the show notes to get you connected up with lifesavingfood.com. So I'm sharing this article from Brandon Smith. It says that mainstream economists are struggling to hide the incoming economic collapse. I mean, come on. We've had people telling us, yeah, inflation's really not that bad. It only affects the rich. You and I know better, though, right? Every time you and I go to the grocery store, do we not feel a little sense of sticker shock? Well, maybe I'll just grab a nice pork roast. It's like a gut punch. 20 bucks for a simple pork shoulder? Yep. That's not to mention everything else, everything on every store shelf going up. We're seeing the dollar buying less and less. I really feel for the people who are on fixed incomes because I think they're going to pay the highest price. But it's not just a matter of stopping, you know, the COVID mandates. There's a, there's a lot of backstory here involving central bankers and globalists. In fact, Brandon Smith points out some of the key policies within the literature for the Great Reset and what the World Economic Forum calls the Fourth Industrial Revolution include things like universal basic income, or UBI, the sharing economy, and eventually a global digital currency system using the IMF's special drawing rights basket as a foundation. Essentially, he says it would be a form of global technocratic communism. And if you enjoy individual freedom, being forced into total reliance on the government for your very survival does not sound appealing. Now, to obtain such a system would require a catastrophe of epic proportions. The COVID pandemic gets the globalists part of the way there, but it's obviously not enough. COVID has not convinced many hundreds of millions of people around the globe to give up their freedoms for the sake of security. But Brandon Smith suggests maybe a stagflationary collapse will accomplish what COVID has not. He says accelerated price spikes and in necessities, including housing and food, will generate mass poverty and homelessness. There is no chance that wages will keep up with costs. The government might step in with more stimulus to help major corporations and business increase wages, but this would basically be the beginning of a universal basic income or free money for everyone, and it would only cause more dollar devaluation and more inflation. Now, they could try to freeze prices, as many communist regimes have done in the past, but this only leads to increased manufacturing shutdowns because the costs of production are too high and the profit incentives too low. So he says, I suspect that the establishment will bring back regular checks, like the COVID checks, for the public now struggling to deal with the ever-increasing expenses and uncertainty, but with strings attached. I mean, you saw this coming, right? Don't expect a UBI check, for example, if you refuse to comply with the VAX mandates. If you run a business, don't expect stimulus aid if you hire non-compliant workers. UBI gives the government ultimate control over everything. And a stagflationary crisis gives them the perfect opportunity to introduce permanent universal basic income. Brandon Smith says the mainstream can no longer deny the fact that stagflation is happening and it is a threat. So hopefully those people that have not been educated on the situation will learn quickly enough to complete the preparations necessary to survive. He says countering stagflation will require localized production, decentralization, and a move away from, the, uh, from reliance on the global supply chain. The institution of local currency systems, perhaps using state banks like the one in North Dakota as a model. Barter markets and physical precious metals that rise in value along with inflationary pressures. 
His point is there's a lot that needs to be done and very little time to do it. At the bottom, or at bottom, he says the fight against economic collapse at the Great Reset starts with each individual and how they prepare. Each person caught by surprise and stricken with poverty is just another person added to the hungry mob begging the establishment for draconian solutions like universal basic income. Each properly prepared individual is, as always, an obstacle to authoritarianism, but he says it's time to choose which one you will be. Now, my longtime listeners know I've, I've long been a, a fan and an advocate of personal preparedness. And I'm going to take this one step further, and, and hopefully you'll find this is consistent with what I've been saying for, for the last few years as well. I think it is not only good, but I think it is essential that you prepare to take care of yourself and your family. And that means you have the necessary food, the necessary supplies, tools, skills, uh, lack of debt, <laughs> the things that uh, could, could be used as leverage against you to bring you under the control of a system that really wants to rule you. But I think it's essential that we take it one step further because as this article points out, there are going to be a lot of people caught by surprise, stricken with poverty. And as tempting as it may be for some people to say, well, they had their chance, screw them, you know, huh? I got mine, but uh, they didn't pay attention and now they're getting what they deserve. Don't be that person. I think that uh, there, there is greater safety in not only being prepared for yourself, but also in laying up stores of supplies or maybe cold weather clothing or just extras that could be used to help the people around you. I don't think this is the kind of situation where just simply hunkering down and lone wolf McQuading your way through it is going to be the answer. I think the solution is going to look a lot more like people voluntarily looking out for each other, looking out for their neighbors. I don't know about you, but I couldn't sit there on my stack of food storage and watch my neighbor's kids slowly starve to death. I don't think I could do that. Well, Brian, if you share with them, aren't you just, uh, you know, condemning yourself and your family to, uh, uh, you know, death by starvation? Possibly. But I'm not going to lose sight of the fact that uh, I feel that uh, I would gladly share with any person who needed my help and allowed me to help them. Now, this is not the same thing as saying that I'm willing to be a doormat for those who would come to take it by force, because I don't agree with that. I've got friends who have become, you know, full-on pacifists. And there's a part of me that really admires them, because it's, it's based in their faith on God. And they're just like, look, if somebody, I don't lock the doors to my house. If somebody wants to come in and take something, well, maybe they need it worse than I do. And they're just not willing to commit violence against them. And I think that actually shows strength of character as opposed to weakness of will or, you know, cowardice. I think they're actually very strong individuals for being able to do that. But I also have people who depend on me to provide and to protect. And I'm not going to let them down. So be prepared to help the people around you. Now is probably the best time to be building those friendships and building those those partnerships, if you will, because, uh, you know, you may need to, to put your life in the hands of other people at some time. But I think there is a question, too, of, you know, where are you really putting your faith? 
And I'm here to tell you, if the uh, if your faith is entirely in temporal things, the arm of the flesh, so to speak, it's going to fail at some point. you got to find a higher source. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. You can count on the experience and the insight of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to help you quickly get the home loan you need at the best rates possible, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. So if you are anywhere within the state of Utah looking to uh, to either refinance your home or to get a home loan, talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Call her at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Mortgage, Patriot Home Mortgage rather, is an equal housing opportunity lender. I want to talk a little bit about status. If you're determined to find lasting happiness through your life's journey, one of the things you're going to have to learn how to do is strip status from your thinking. Now, Paul Rosenberg is is one of those people who just, I think, has an excellent take on status and and human nature. And I, I want to start with a couple of definitions from him. He says, status is generally defined as a person's condition, position, or standing relative to that of others. Now, he says, read that definition again and consider this. Status is generally defined as a person's condition, position, or standing relative to others. Here's what he's asking you to consider. Status automatically creates division and conflict because it forces us to think in terms of position, hierarchy, and dominance and can't possibly do otherwise. It's built solely upon our standing relative to others. In other words, status is a poison. It causes us to think of others as adversaries and to compulsively compare positions. He says, to be very blunt about it, status is a primate model of seeing other beings. But it's even worse than that. Not only does status poison our interrelationships, it poisons our self-image because it requires us to think of ourselves as either above or below every other person. So here are the two central problems with status. Status is plainly irrational or massively complex beings at the same time better and worse than the next person in a dozen ways. Secondly, status forces us to see each other as adversarial. Status seeds hate, malice, and war. So it's kind of an evolutionary hurdle is what he's saying here. And the ruling systems of this world are incarnations of status. They are status made flesh, to paraphrase a famous scripture. That's a primary reason why the world is perpetually at war. The very model on which our society is built sets man against man, group against group, automatically and unavoidably. Unavoidably, rather. It's something that's been trained into us. For dozens of generations. It's something that's influenced us all of our lives, but it's not us. Status, he says, is a rather dirty and old habit. Now, the good news is individual human beings tend to transcend status fairly well when they exert effort on it. 
For instance, they learn to drop the concept among people they love. And therein lies the proof that status isn't really what we're about. We're better than status. And even human beings who are immersed in the poisonous, persistent mindscape of status can still demonstrate love and charity. The good news of that is human nature is better than we thought it was. Now, when he wrote that article, and I believe the first one was published back in like 2014 or something like that. Hang on a sec. I'll give you an exact date. I have the technology. It's 2015. Okay. December of 2015. When he first wrote that commentary, he got some pretty good pushback. But he says, I'm going to double down, as people like to say these days, and return to status. And some thoughts on this. And he says, one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I've been studying about Jesus. And he says, one of the things I've become clear on while doing this work has been Jesus' strategy for getting his people, or getting his teachings, rather, to the people of Israel. And a major component of that strategy was to avoid any mixture of status with his personal image. Now listen to this take. Paul Rosenberg says, Jesus fought to maintain his mind slot as an outsider and a non-powerful person. If he had allowed himself to become famous, people would have believed him for the wrong reasons. So to whatever extent they believed him, because he was a famous healer or whatever, the degree of internal changes that his believers bore would be that much reduced. And people being changed on the inside was more or less the only thing that Jesus really cared about. Now, he says, the details on this are going to have to wait till his work is published. But he says, I'm quite firm on the conclusion. And he says, I think it was a stroke of genius on Jesus's part. Status, you see, poisons more or less everything it touches. Because it requires us to look at our condition, position, or standing relative to that of others. Status forces us to think in terms of position, hierarchy, and dominance. It causes us to think of others as adversaries, to compulsively compare positions. That's not a healthy thing. So he says, to be very blunt about it, status is an archaic, barbaric model of seeing other beings. But it's worse than that. It requires us to think of ourselves as above or below every other person. That's not a way to be happy. So he says, if humanity is going to rise as a species, we have to transcend status. And until we do, humans will continue to think in conflict-centered terms. Human history will remain centered on conflict. Paul Rosenberg says, status is a continuous belief in man versus man, a rather hypnotic belief, really. And it makes little difference whether we see ourselves on the above or below side of the exchange. If we're above others, then we're given to arrogance and abuse. And if we're below others then we're given to resentment and lashing out. But he says both errors lead to inner decay and outer conflict. He says our present world is dominated by status-based structures. Whether kingdom, democracy, or whatever, status-based structures set one man or group of men above all others. People of a higher position collect the production of the lower people, issue edicts for them to obey, and punish those who do not. In other words, the ruling systems of this present world really are the incarnation of status. And that's the, that's the reason why you constantly see group against group, man against man. He says individual humans are able to transcend this status fairly well. 
but he says it's time to start stripping that status from our minds. This is one of the reasons why in the last segment I was talking about, you know, being prepared is great. And there really is peace of mind in knowing that, you know what, we may not be able to prepare for everything, but to have that can-do attitude and to have that mentality of, we'll figure it out, that's great. But it's also a good thing to be thinking in terms of, how can I help those around me? I mean, I think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and, you know, I don't, don't want to turn this into Sunday school here, but there's a great lesson about status in that story. If you think about it, when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, he talks about the, the Israelite who was wounded and left by robbers laying alongside the trail. The first two people who came by were people of status. In other words, they were among the in crowd. They were among the, uh, the people who society would look up to. But they were the ones who passed by. And along comes this Samaritan who, you know, um, culturally was at odds with this Israelite. But who had compassion on him and took care of him, and took him and, and found lodging for him and treated his wounds and, and paid for him to be fed. Now, that parable was given in response to, well, who is, who is my neighbor or who is my brother? I suggest that, uh, you know, the, the guy who was the Samaritan who helped out this, this wounded traveler, this robbed traveler, wasn't coming from a place of status. He was coming from a place where he saw the intrinsic value in another human being, regardless of of what that person's ethnicity was or background or ideological beliefs or anything like that. Now, I say this with the understanding, that is really, that's a high bar to clear. But I think it's a bar that we're better for reaching for. Even if we fail to clear that bar, we're still better for having tried to reach it. And I'm certainly not perfect at this, especially behind the wheel. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's pretty hard to uh, to to think charitably when somebody cuts you off in traffic but i'm thinking that peace of mind and i mean real peace of mind in the days ahead is going to become very dependent on our ability to to see other people not as adversaries not as you know somebody who we're you know in competition with for status but as fellow children of god as fellow human beings who have value and who are worthwhile. And I submit to you that the people who will most effectively change the world are the ones who will overcome that need to be over others and just simply look at others as, you know, your spiritual equal. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I had kind of an interesting experience over the weekend. Parts of this I won't share just because uh, this is this is kind of personal, but um, I heard from my birth mother over the weekend. Just got a call from her out of the blue. And it was such a, a pleasant surprise. 
I uh, I had kind of an interesting experience a few years ago where I sat down and I actually wrote out what would I say if I had the chance to talk to my birth mother. And one of the things that that I came to was, and it was it was pretty simple. It was just a couple quick, you know, sentences. But above all, I thought, you know, I would want her to know that I'm grateful for the decision that she made to go ahead and have me, you know, to to let the pregnancy go to term, uh, to to bring me into this world, and to put me up for adoption, which you know, it's not an easy thing, you know the. You you take a calf away from its mother, and the cow will go on with her life. She's not going to spend her the rest of her years pining, you know, for her calf. But with a human being, you know, you carry a baby to term. Um, that's that's a that's a pretty significant thing, and I don't believe a mother ever truly, you know, forgets, you know, that. Uh, oh, by the way, you uh, you gave birth to somebody on this day. And as I sat down to write that letter, I thought, this is kind of a weird exercise, but I was, you know, I was writing at the time and just, you know, trying to, let's go with it and see where it goes. And I remember as I was writing that uh, that uh, letter to, to the woman I've never met, I wanted to tell her, you made the right decision. It was harder for you to walk the path that you walked, but you did it. And because of that, you will always be a hero to me. Always. And as I wrote those words, um, I remember um, feeling a just powerful impression of um, how important it was to, to get that message out there. And, and so a few years later, um, my birthday came up, and it was a few days after my birthday. It was actually the, the day that I was adopted. I went ahead and I, I wrote up a Facebook post and I was getting ready to post it and it was about, and, and it was it was basically that here's the message I would have for uh, this this woman that I've never met, but just to assure her that she made the right decision. And I wrote it up and I went to post it and I went, ah, this seems self-serving. I don't know if I want to share this or not. So I went and started doing some other things. And, you know, some people will relate to this, others won't, but... Um, I had the most clear and powerful impression. You need to post that, and you need to post it now. I mean, it was like clear, like get off your butt and post that message that you just crafted. And I was like, okay, that was pretty clear. So I went ahead and posted it on Facebook. And I kind of wondered in the back of my mind, does this mean, you know, that maybe somehow this message is going to, to reach my birth mother, you know? Um... Well, it didn't. But what it did was it it reached a number of people within my Facebook circle of friends. And suddenly I heard from people I had known for decades who stepped forward and, and, and these women were saying, I gave a child up for adoption. And you have no idea how much those words meant to me as a mother who gave a child up for adoption. And it, it was very powerful to me. It was like, holy cow. So that wasn't meant for me at all. It was a message that somebody else needed to hear. And in the back of my mind, I kind of wondered, well, am I ever going to get that chance? I don't know. And I kind of resigned myself to, if I have the chance, maybe it'll be in this life. Maybe it'll be in the next life. There is going to come a time where I'm going to stand before the woman who brought me into the world. And I'm going to tell her, thank you. And assure her that she made the right choice. And I'm going to also assure her that I did not squander the opportunity that she gave me. Well, 
for those who have been following, uh, you know, on, on my Facebook feed, about a year and a half ago, I actually was able to make that connection. Thanks to, you know, my son giving me a 23andMe DNA kit, you know, I, I learned, uh, I surprisingly learned who my birth father was. I didn't expect to ever know who he was or, or ever contact him, but that was my first contact. He, in turn, gave me enough information to contact my birth mother, and that's what I did. I sent her a, sent her a card in the mail and it just said, hey, on this date, you gave me the greatest gift possible. And I just need you to know that I have not squandered that gift. And if you want to contact me, here's how you can do so. And I waited. And, well, it seems like a lot of weeks went by. And I heard nothing. And then one day out of the blue, I get a phone call from a very pleasant uh, man by the name of Greg, who it turns out is my half-brother. That started the ball in motion. Long story short, I did have the chance to talk to my birth mom, her name is Mary, and uh, had the chance to give that message to her. Now, the twist to this is uh, Mary has been in a a state of uh, cognitive decline for some time. And so it could be be a little bit confusing. And there's there's been times when I've met with her where um, the recognition wasn't quite there, but I've also had a couple of conversations with with her that were just incredibly lucid. And I'm sharing this with you, well, for for a couple of reasons. Number one, I was able to deliver that message, and uh, and the the greatest blessing of being able to deliver that message to her was to hear her relate to me how that freed her from guilt, shame, sorrow that she had carried for, for all these years. And she also said, you know, I look at the, the kind of person you've become. And I know people who don't like me are like, yeah, we've seen that too. <laughs> but she says, I see, the, I see what you've done with your life. And I'm convinced that uh, this, I, I did the right thing. And I'm grateful that I did it. So I'm, I feel immensely blessed for having had the opportunity to make that connection, to, to give that message to her, and to see healing take place. And, and by the way, it, it, it's opened up a new dimension of my life uh, that, that I never even knew I, I really wanted to, to look into. It's, it's been amazing. It's been a blessing at every level. But I bring this up in part because right now there is a very big row developing in the Supreme Court over Roe v. Wade. And there's potential that the Roe v. Wade decision will be, you know, overturned. I don't know. I mean, the people are threatening. We will, we will riot in the streets if we don't get our way. Gee, we've never seen that before. But I look at the courage that Mary had in making the decision to give me up for adoption. And this was at a time. This was this was prior to Roe v. Wade, by a few years. So. You know, the uh, abortion wasn't quite the, the you know, fix-all solution that, that some people pretend it is. But it was still available for people who, who wanted it, people who wanted to avail themselves. They could, they could find a way. They could go to a neighboring state. They could find some way to make it happen. I'm really grateful that she did not lean in that direction. You know, there was, uh, that was at a time where, the, the focus was still on the innocent life that would be lost 
as opposed to simply we must uphold the mother's reproductive rights at all costs. And I'm watching this case, um, not, you know, it's not like it's taking all of my time, but I'm watching this case of uh, Mississippi arguing for the right to set its own abortion laws, you know, before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, they, they were making this argument actually last week. And it's possible. This may, this may set off some really big shockwaves throughout America, culturally, societally, politically. It's a huge hot-button issue. I think it was Rush Limbaugh back in the uh, 90s used to talk about in, in his book. See, I told you so. He, he talked about how abortion would be the catalyst for our next civil war. Now, see, I don't believe we had a civil war in the first place. We did have a, an attempt at uh, secession, much like we saw the colonies do from Great Britain, but uh, it wasn't two entities fighting over the control of the same government. This one, I think, potentially, this could be one of those flashpoint issues that could bring about such a conflict. And it wouldn't be the only cause of the conflict, just like slavery wasn't the only cause of the war between the states. But it definitely plays a role. So I, I share this story with you to, to illustrate, look, it's an imperfect world. And even when people make mistakes, I still believe that every mistake brings with it the opportunity for uh, redemption and for personal growth. So when people argue that, well, the best thing to do for everybody involved is to, uh, you know, snuff out the life that's inconvenient... You can have a hard time convincing me of that just because of the experience that I have had firsthand in seeing how lives have been challenged and then ultimately blessed by making the decision to give others a chance to be parents. So let me be on the record here as being very pro-adoption as well as very grateful for those who make that choice. And here's hoping the right prevails. This is The Brian Hyde Show.